Good morning. Would you, uh, as a courtesy to others and as a courtesy to our speaker, please make sure that your cell phone is turned to silence. And I want to welcome those of you who are visiting today, and I hope you will pay special attention to the announcement about an event we have coming up the first weekend in uh, January. And if it did not get announced today, the Ordinary Life Happy Hour is this Friday night, I mean the Ordinary Life Christmas party. Is this at Anderson Fair? And you can never tell what will happen. That was true. So, anyway. So, um, it's our custom here in Ordinary Life to begin this time in silence. So, if you would just get yourself in the space, do what it takes to be here. Our goal is to be present and open and awake. And I begin with this adaptation of a Gallic prayer. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and our, at our departing. My hope is that <clears throat> you find what you're looking for by being here today. That you uh, leave here with more peace and love and joy than you walked in here with. And that we do this work with the belief that uh, what we do here honors and benefits all people everywhere. We honor a trinity here of love and honesty and freedom. And so um, our message is that no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So I sent out another special announcement yesterday on the Ordinary Life uh, listserv. If you're not on that and would like to be, you can sign up at the back or you can see me or any, practically anybody else here to get on that list. Because I wanted to announce um, this woman's appearance here on January the 6th and 7th, an all-day Saturday event. And she'll be here on Sunday, Jan Phillips, who's written a book called Still on Fire. And um, since last Sunday, Jan and I have talked again, and after we got off the phone, she sent me an email that contained these words. <clears throat> Using music, poetry, video, and storytelling, Jan will lead us in a group pondering that will lead to clarity and purposefulness. The goals for the time are to create a faith of justice and joy, to feel the joy of your heart and brain working as one, to open yourself to the support of your community, and to discern the service you are being called to right now. Jen is the founder and executive director of the Living Kindness Foundation. She's a TED Talk speaker. She's the founder of the Syracuse uh, Cultural Workers Publishers. She's performed with Pete Seeger. She has opened for Jane Goodall. She's made a peace pilgrimage around the world. She's worked with Mother Teresa in Nepal and Calcutta. She's presented her workshops around the world in 23 different countries. And as a multimedia artist, she weaves storytelling, music video, and poetry into her presentations on how our brains and hearts are connected. And the book that I first read of hers, Still on Fire. Uh, if you read it, you'll come. And uh, it's a, I want to tell you how to do that. So Ordinary Life has a website. This is the landing page of the website. And I'm grateful for the technical people, those at the back of the room who are keeping us on the air and doing this. By the way, if you're live streaming this, and I got an email just this morning from somebody in Idaho who said, could they register for this workshop and watch it live stream? The answer is yes. Go to this website, go to this particular button and push it and register. And if you're out of town and live streaming, 
Tim Leatherwood says we will need your email address because shortly before the event on Saturday, you will get a link that will allow you then to um, join the live stream. And the day-long event on Saturday will be live stream. Your money will go to a lunch that we will pack up and send to you sometime in February. <laughs> uh, but you'll like it when you get it anyway. So gift yourself um, this Christmas by coming to this event and um, make it a New Year's resolution. I, I keep nagging you about this because I know you're good, sensitive, and responsible responding people, but uh, next Sunday I will be teaching, and then the next two Sundays will be dark because of Christmas and New Year's. And I just don't want this event to get lost. We're so lucky to have her to come. So um, go look at the website and um, come. So I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Stephen Kleinberg here. Stephen, um, I thought came to Houston a little bit earlier than you did. You came in 72, right? Now I came in 66. And, but Stephen and a host of other people, Bill Martin was here recently speaking, people that I know we've had a relationship for, for years. Stephen spoken here before. It's been several years ago. He and uh, his sociology students at Rice started a research project that's been going on now for over 33 years. It's the longest longitudinal study of any urban area in the world. And um, he's got such interesting and exciting things to share about it. Stephen, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Ordinary Life. Hey, hello, hello. Oh, that's uh, getting better. So you also, you also need a modern, modern computer. We have an old computer here that isn't, isn't in sync with what's here, so we're working on it. It's going to be a little while, I think, before I can actually show you some slides of what we've learned, we think, from 41 years of systematic, something called St. Wait, where'd you get this? That's... You opened the wrong... Wait, go. St. Paul's. There. You go up one. There you go. It's going to work? Yep. Is it synced? Is it going to be? Not on here yet. Go Hang in there. Keep the faith. Okay. Good for you. Almost, we think. I'm going to relax you a little bit. Oh, there it is. Oh, okay. Wow. It's working? Okay, let me, let me go back here. Wait, wait. It's a whole new thing. Okay, well, I the first page it says, Prophetic City, Houston on the cusp of a changing America. We did our first survey back in 1982. Houston was booming. One million people had moved here. Let's see, where's this thing? One, one million people had moved here between 1970 and 1982, coming at the rate of 1,380 people a week, 230 cars and trucks every day being added to the streets and freeways of Harris County. Greatest boom anyone had ever seen, brought about by the tenfold increase in the value of oil. This was a one-company town. 82% of all the primary sector jobs in Houston were tied into the price of oil. Price of oil increased tenfold during the 1970s with no less in world demand. Boomtown America. It was also a city world famous for having imposed the least amount of controls on development of any city in the Western world. <laughs> Who cares if it's ugly? So what if it smells? It's the smell of money. Come on down. So we did a one-time survey. It fell in my lot to teach a research methods class of sociology majors advice. One time, sir, measure how are people balancing this tremendous growth with growing concerns about traffic, pollution, crime? What kind of city are we building with all this affluence? One time survey never occurred to us to do it again. Two months later, the oil boom collapsed. 
The price of oil had gone from $3.20 in 1970 to 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 38. We were building on the basis of $50 oil. Suddenly there was a worldwide glut and the price of oil fell down to $28. And by the end of 1983, 100,000 jobs were lost in Houston, in this booming city that had nothing but economic boom from its beginning. So we said, my God, we better do this survey again. And for 41 years now, taking a representative, random sample of Harris County residents, reached by random telephone numbers, a random adult in each random household. Actually, people don't answer the phones anymore, so it's a new technique. We can touch on that uh, at the end, if you'd like. Asking a representative random sample of Harris County residents, how do you see the world? What is happening in your life? And we have sat back and watched the world change. Houston went into major recession with the collapse of the oil boom and, by, and, and then recovered in the 1990s into a radically different world. The three great themes in the survey is a, a new economy where the source of wealth from now on will have less to do with natural resources and more to do with human resources. Growing inequalities predicated above all else on access to quality education. A truly epic transformation in the ethnic composition of the Houston, the Texas, and the American population. Why here? Why now? What does this mean for us as we go forward? And a new awareness that if Houston's going to make it in the 21st century, it has to become a destination of choice. A place where the best and the brightest people in America working at the cutting edge of knowledge, able to put that knowledge into commercial ventures, will say, I want to live in Houston, Texas. That's a little bit of a stretch for Houston. We've done the beautiful mountains. But we've been making enormous progress in building a much more attractive city than it had been when all of our eggs were in the basket of oil. So let me touch as quickly as I can on these three things. This is, I finally wrote a book on this. I've been working on this book for 38 years. It came out in, 19, in 1990, worst possible time, June of 1990. I'm sorry, June of 2020. Uh, it was supposed to be 1990. June of, uh, I thought I'd be sent all over the country now to talk about Houston, why it is the most exciting, interesting, challenging center of, of what's happening across America. No one sent me anywhere in June of 2020. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the rise of the new economy. Here are the, 40, the 30 years after World War II, when the rising tide lifted all boats. The poorest 20% of American families more than doubled their incomes in real terms during the 19, uh, during, during the, between 1945 and 1970. And the richest 5% doubled theirs. This is a world of big business, big government, big labor. 38% of the jobs in America were union jobs. The unions can negotiate with the corporations to ensure that workers shared in the prosperity of the companies. And those were the years when the rising tide lifted all boats. Those were also the years when we celebrated the stay-at-home housewife mother in suburbia. The average American woman between 1946 and 1964 gave birth to 3.6 children on average. Today it's 1.6, 3.6 children on average, and the baby boom was launched upon the land, preceded and followed by baby bus generations. So for 70 years, there's been this bulge going through the American system. Demographers talk about like a pig being swallowed by a python. Not very comfortable either for the pig or the python. The leading edge of those 76 million Americans born in that incredible period after World War II, the leading edge turned 76 this year. And we are going to watch a literal doubling of the number of Americans over the age of 75 in the next 25 years. And, as, and, and, the, and the baby boom generation is, of course, overwhelmingly Anglos. That's who was here to be born in that period after World War II. And we're watching an epic transformation as the aging of Americans is an aging of Anglos and the younger people disproportionately non-Anglo, as I'll get to in a moment. So this is the 30 years after World War II. Here are the last, the last uh, 40 years when virtually all the benefits of economic growth in the last 40 years has gone to the richest 20% of Americans. 60% of American families, after, finding, after seeing their incomes double during the, the period after World War II, 60% have stagnated in income, and all the benefits of growth have gone to the richest 20%, most of that to the richest 5%, most of that to the richest 1%, in a striking redistribution of earnings out of the hands of the poor and the middle class into the hands of the rich and the super-rich. What happened? Why did the economy change so profoundly? Two big things happened, and then a total failure in our political systems of ability to deal with this issue. Number one, of course, globalization. Companies can produce goods anywhere, sell them everywhere. If you're doing a job that I can train a third world worker to do, and I pay that third world worker $15 a day, I'm not going to pay you $15 an hour. And if you are doing a job that I can program a computer to do, which is the beginnings of the robotics revolution, I will soon be replacing your job with an intelligent machine. 
We are in a new world where education, always a nice thing to have, has become absolutely essential to a person's ability to find a job that can support a family in the global knowledge economy of the 21st century. Here's one piece of evidence for this. This is an analysis of the educational requirements for jobs across America during the 1970s. There were 91 million jobs in America. Of those 91 million jobs, one-third you were eligible for as a high school dropout. Another 40% required no more than high school. 75% of all the jobs in America uh, during the 1970s required high school or less. And here's what's happened to those jobs. And today, 65% of all the jobs that exist in America require education beyond high school. Not necessarily four years of college, but one or two years in a community college to acquire the technical skills that connect you to the jobs of the 21st century in a radical new reality where education in Houston, of course, and in Texas, Education was not important. You, made, you, didn't, you didn't need education to make money. You made money by land, by all the things you could do on the land, cotton, timber, cattle, sugar, oil. The source of wealth in the 21st century will have less and less to do with natural resources, which was the basis for the wealth of Houston and Texas throughout all of its history, and more to do now with knowledge, with skills. With the, and, and a city's success will depend on its ability to attract the best and the brightest people in America working at the cutting edge of knowledge, able to put that knowledge into commercial ventures. Here's one piece of evidence. I, I, what I love about these surveys is we're just taking a representative random sample. Don't blame me. I'm just asking the questions. You can watch people shift. And here's one of the fundamental, I think, really important and exciting changes that we've watched. We asked this question. We said, what comes closest is your opinion about the public schools in Houston? The schools have enough money if it were used wisely to provide a quality education, or the schools will need significantly more money to provide a quality education. And during the 1990s, majorities, 59, 61%, said the schools have all the money they need. It's just being wasted by the bureaucratic systems. Uh, and then during the first decade of the 21st century, it was a 50-50 split. We stopped asking the question because it wasn't changing. Came back from to, uh, after 2009 and 2018, and here's what we found. Just a striking revolution in people's understandings of how critical education has become for the economy of the 21st century. Uh, and, and here's the inequalities that we've been tracking. Supposing you had to come up with $400 to meet an emergency expense. How would you deal with that, with that emergency? Would you be able to pay for it out of savings? Would you need to borrow it? Or would you not be able to come up with $400? And 47% of all African-American families, 40% of all Hispanic families, said they could not come up with $400 to meet an emergency expense. Living on the edge, deepening inequalities. We asked about, did you have any trouble paying rent or mortgage during the past year? And then, of course, we have the greatest medical complex in the world in Houston. And Houston has the highest percentage of children without health insurance of any major city in America. And 41% of all Latino families, 21% of all African-American families said they have no health insurance whatsoever in this, the, the health care capital of the world. Right? And it's a powerful reminder of those inequalities coming above all out of access to education. Uh, and then here's another interesting set of questions about, we've always believed in Houston, this is a land of opportunity. Anyone can make it if they're willing to work hard. And if you're not making it, you've got no one to blame but yourself. And here's a series of questions we've been asking about the role of government in all of this. The government should see to it that everyone who wants to work can find a job. 71% growing to 79%. Interesting trend, but, but not terribly significant. Whoa. Do you think most people who receive welfare benefits are really in need of help, or are they taking advantage of the system? The percent saying they're really in need of help went from 34% to 69% in the course of these surveys. Uh, are you in favor or opposed to federal health insurance to cover the medical costs of all Americans? And then do you, th do you agree or disagree? Government has a responsibility to help reduce the inequalities between rich and poor in America. Went from what is that, 55% to 89% in the survey last year. Just a striking new understanding that people are poor in this country through no fault of their own. And, and government that has basically reneged on any responsibility over the last 45, 50 years has got to play a, a powerful role. So theme number one that has been transforming our city is a growing recognition of the critical importance of education in ensuring access to quality opportunity. Theme number two this remarkable, fundamentally reversible transformation in the ethnic composition of the Houston, the Texas, and the American population. Why here? Why now? Why is this happening? Here's a big, a quick history lesson. This is the number of documented immigrants coming to America in each of the years from 1820 through 2010. 
story of our lifetimes is that between 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and 1965, 82% of all the human beings on the face of this earth who came to American shores, 82% came from Europe. Another 12% were Africans, originally brought here as slaves to serve the Europeans. There was a handful of Chinese and Japanese working as farmers and laborers in California and Hawaii. This nation was an amalgam of European nationalities, deliberately so. We were operating under the last 40 years of that period, between 1924 and 1965, under one of the most viciously racist laws the U.S. Congress ever passed, the National Origins Quota Act. And it came out of the great anti-immigrant racist backlash that accompanied the last great wave of immigration when 15.9 million immigrants came to America between 1890 and 1914. Coming from Europe, but not coming from Northern Europe. They were coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, and they weren't Protestants, they were Catholics and Jews, and they had no history of democracy. Come and take our jobs to track. In 1924, we enacted this incredible act that said from now on, only Northern Europeans would be allowed to come to America. Use a new science of psychology in the IQ test to declare in the act, science has proven that there are three subspecies of the white race. The Nordics, who are biologically and intellectually superior to the Alpines, who in turn are superior to the Mediterraneans, and all of them are superior to the Jews and the Asians. And the law codified the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 in California, the Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan of 1906, to declare in that act of 1924, Asians are an inferior subspecies of humanity, ineligible from ever becoming American citizens, and Asians were banned entirely from coming to America. Isn't that incredible? Speaking out of the racist world of the, of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the law could not survive the shifts of consciousness with the civil rights movements of the 1950s and early 60s. Jack Kennedy's assassination. Kennedy was one of the great champions of immigration. Last book published before you, after he was assassinated was entitled A Nation of Immigrants, a celebration of how much immigration had transformed this country. And partly in tribute to him, in 1965, Congress changed the law. So, okay, we used to be a racist nation. We're not racist anymore. We're going to give every country recognized by the UN 20,000 visas a year, so get off my back. We're not racist. <laughs> but we're going to continue the hallmark of American immigration policy, which is family reunification. If you're the father, mother, sister, brother, son, or daughter of an American citizen, you can come to the head of the line. Therefore, said Congress, first of all, we think immigration has ended, but if it hasn't, we're going to give preference to people related to those already here, so nothing will change. We're just getting this embarrassing law off the books. Then, because it was Congress, it couldn't leave things alone, it added another provision and said, well, if you're a professional of exceptional ability, or if you have skills that are demonstrably needed in the short supply, you too can come to the head of the line. And Congress, in its debates in the 50s and early 60s, was saying, we need to open the door for some more British doctors, some more German engineers. It never occurred to anyone that there were going to be African doctors, Indian engineers, Chinese computer programmers, Filipino nurses who would be able for the first time in the 20th century to come to America. The law was changed in 1965. It's been called one of the great inadvertent acts that the U.S. Congress has ever passed in a body known for its inadvertent acts and its unintended consequences. We thought nothing would change. Everything changed. During the 1960s, three and a half million immigrants came. Only 38% were from Europe. 1970s, 5 million came, only 18% were Europeans. 1980s, the 90s, and 2000s, 10 million immigrants per decade have been coming to America. 88% coming from Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Caribbean. And the United States, throughout all of our history, had been an amalgam of European nationalities, is becoming a microcosm of the world. The first nation in the history of the world that can say we are a free people and we come from everywhere. It's a truly remarkable change. At the same moment as the American economy is becoming fully integrated in a single global world economic system, America, a microcosm of the world. Immigration, of course, is network driven. You go where you know people, so it's not happening at the same rate everywhere. The big immigration capital of America is, of course, New York City in terms of sheer numbers, followed by Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, followed right after Chicago by Houston, San Francisco. Washington, D.C., Dallas, San Diego, Boston, Atlanta, spreading out of every city and town across America. No city has been transformed as fully, as completely, as suddenly, as irreversibly as Houston, Texas. This city throughout all of our history was a biracial southern city dominated and controlled in an automatic, taken-for-granted way by white men. And in the space of the last 40 years, has become the single most ethnically diverse major metropolitan area in the entire country. Here are the, here are the figures. This is the census data. 
1960, there were 1.243 million of us living in Harris County, Texas. There's our biracial world. 74% of us were Anglos, 20% African-Americans, 6% Hispanics, less than one half of 1% were Asians. During the 1960s and 70s, it was Anglos pouring into Houston from everywhere else in the country. This is where the jobs were. By 1980, Houston became the fourth largest city in America, still an overwhelmingly Anglo city. After the oil bust of 1982, 40 years ago, the Anglo population of Harris County stopped growing. And all the growth of this, the most rapidly growing city in America, has been the influx of African Americans, Latinos, and Asians. Here are the last four decades in this story in the history of Houston. Just striking, right? The Anglo population stops growing after 1960, after 1990 and then declines slightly. The African-American population keeps pace with the population as a whole, growing by about 20% per decade, fueled by African and Jamaican immigration, fueled by the great remigration of middle-class African-Americans who'd gone to northern cities in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, coming back to southern cities, Atlanta first, Houston second, African-American population keeping pace, and surging populations of Latinos and Asians. And by 2020, the, the greater Houston metropolitan area, or Harris County in this case, is now 43% Hispanic, 28% Anglo, 19% African-American, 10% Asian. Jeff. Striking. I mean, just a re really remarkable story. Uh, and here's a way to envision this. This is Harris County in 1980. There are 1,420 census tracts in Harris County. And in blue are all the census tracts in the 1980 census that had majority Anglo populations. In, uh, here it is in, in 1990. Here it is in 2000. And here it is in 2010. Isn't that incredible? No city in human history has been transformed as rapidly, as fully, as completely, as suddenly, as irreversibly as Houston, Texas. No one planned this. No one said, let's turn Houston into the most ethnically diverse city. It is Houston's destiny. It is a story of Houston in the 21st century. Like it or not, it is where the American future is going to be worked out. And we're there first. I can show, I'm going to show you a few other pieces of this in just a second. Oh, I'm sorry. Here it is in the 2020 census. Um, not much, a few little pockets of, of, of Anglo life, but of course we're, the fact that we, in this, we share the same census tract doesn't mean we know each other, get, and, and there's still an enormous amount of segregation, of course. But here's why we make the claim that Houston is the most ethnically diverse city in the country. How do, you, how do you measure the ethnic diversity of a population? So there are two ways to do it. One is, what's the population of Anglos? The fewer Anglos, fewer US, US, the fewer non-Hispanic whites there are in a population, the more ethnically diverse it is. A better, stronger, now more standard way is what's called the entropy index. How close does a population in America come to one-fourth one Asian, one-fourth Latino, one-fourth African-American, one-fourth Anglo? And by that measure, Houston just beats out New York. My friends in New York say New York just beats out Houston as the most ethnically diverse metropolitan area in the country. Here, here are the figures. So here's Houston, the greater Houston metropolitan area. Here's New York. And then here are the eight other most diverse, large metropolitan areas in the country as of the 2020 census. So two big things to point to here. Number one is every successful city in America in the last 40 years has been successful because it managed to become a magnet for the new immigration of the last 40 years. Uh, cities that have not become magnets, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Buffalo, have all been experienced dramatic drop-offs in population and, and no longer the center and most important cities in America. The important cities are ones that have become magnets for the new immigration. When you look at the distribution, Los Angeles has too few African, too, too few, uh, African Americans, just 6%. Chicago has too many Anglos at 50%. Miami has way too few Asians. Houston is where the four communities meet in greater balance, greater equality, all of us minorities. All of us called on to build something that has never existed before in human history. A truly successful, inclusive, equitable, united, multi-ethnic society made up of all the peoples, all the ethnicities, all the religions of the world gathered together in one remarkable place. That is the destiny of Houston. And again, none of us would necessarily have chosen that. There it is. These are the cards that this generation has been dealt. Um, and it's not just numbers, of course, it's also ages. So this brings me back to the baby boom we were talking about earlier. Let's see, I've got babies on the left here. I've got old people on the right. 
I've got 12 different age categories from under the age of five to 75 years old or older. Here, somewhat to my chagrin, is where the Anglos are in Harris County, Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, the baby boom. It's not until you reach people age 63 and older across Harris County, not inner city Houston, not HISD, all of Harris County, not until you reach people age 63 and older that the majority of folks are still Anglos. And in each younger age group, the percentage of Anglos plummets. The percentage of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians surges. Here's where everybody else is in Harris County, Texas. So this is a powerful picture of Houston's present and future, of everybody in Harris County under the age of 20 who will be the workers and voters and citizens and taxpayers of Houston in the 21st century. Of everybody under the age of 20, 51% are Latinos, 19% are African-Americans, 10% are Asians, 21% of everybody under 20 is Anglo. So two big themes here. Wow, 70% of everybody under 20 across all of Harris County is African-American and Latino, the two groups that we've seen the most likely to be living in poverty. We know what poverty does to your ability to succeed in the public school systems. It is a safe statement to make that if Houston's African-American and Latino young people are unprepared to succeed, in the global knowledge economy of the 21st century, it is difficult, if not impossible, to envision a prosperous future for Houston. That is who we are and will be as the 21st century unfolds. And the other point to make is that this is a done deal. Close the borders, build your fence, close off America, round up those 10 million people you think are here illegally and send them wherever you think they're supposed to go. 63-year-old Anglos are not gonna be making a whole lot more babies. <laughs> we'll do the best we can. We'll work on it every chance we got. You can go to the bank on this, right? No conceivable force in the world is going to stop Houston or Texas or America from becoming more African-American, more Asian, more Latino, and less Anglo as the 21st century unfolds. Nothing in the world can stop that. So the only question our generation has been given Okay, how do we make this work? How do we ensure that this diversity becomes a tremendous asset that can be as we position ourselves in the global economy, the gateway to the global marketplace, a microcosm of all the world's peoples and, and, and businesses, and make sure it doesn't end up tearing us apart and becoming a major liability, reducing rather than enhancing our competitiveness in the global economy, much depends on how this generation speaks to this remarkable convergence of the two forces that have changed the world before our eyes a new economy where education has become critical and a demographic revolution. And here we are at the vortex of those two central challenges changing all of America, nowhere more clearly seen than in Houston. Okay, so this is Harris County. Here's the United States today. Same pattern, all of, still an overwhelmingly Anglo country, but that same pattern, the aging of Anglos, that is one of the central realities of our lifetimes. Uh, and actually, the census said, in fact, of everybody we reached in, in the census of 2020, under the age of 10, across all of America, the majority are now African-American, Latino, and Asian. And you want to know what America will look like in 2050? Let's just assume no immigration. So we'll just go by the actuarial tables, those pesky things that none of us like to pay much attention to. Uh, here's what they say America looks like in, oh, there's, here's, here's what America looks like in 2050. So this is very close to Houston today. It's actually almost identical to Texas today. Uh, and so is a fair statement to make. How we in Houston navigate this transition will have enormous significance, not just for the Houston future, but for the American future. For better or worse, this is where the American future is going to be worked out. Still not loud enough? Better. Okay, I'll try to get all this. Uh, we, I mean, it's, as I say, none of us would have chosen that this is the story of Houston, whether we like it or not, and this is our opportunity. It's hard to see New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami being in a better position than Houston to, to be a model for what America can be and will be as the 21st century unfolds. And so our interest, of course, in these surveys is not just the demographics and the realities, but also how are people responding to these changes. And I want to show you just a few things before I leave to my final theme. The single most powerful predictor among Anglos in our surveys of all of our measures of comfort with diversity, support for immigration, the single most powerful predictor is not education, it's not gender, it's age. 
younger Anglos are taking for granted what we older Anglos are struggling to accept. And here's one of the ways we measure this. We are looking at just US-born Harris County Anglos, all when they were aged 25 to 35, asking these identical questions and, and graphed by whether or not they were born in the 1960s, born in the 1970s, the baby boom, 1970s, Gen X, and 1980s, the beginnings of the millennial generation. And here are three questions. Anyway, I could have shown you three other ones. Is this better? Who is better? I'll take it. Should I start over again? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I'll try. Remember to hold it, hold it up now. Hold, remind me if I drop this too. Uh, so we're looking at three, three groups of U.S.-born Harris County Anglos. When they were, and here are three questions we asked. One is, do you think the increasing immigration into this country today mostly strengthens American culture or mostly threatens American culture? 67% of millennials, but only 50% of baby boomers said it strengthens American culture. We said, do you think immigrants to the U.S. generally contribute more to the American economy than they take, or do they take more than they contribute? Then we asked, uh, do, the US should, do you think the U.S. should admit more of the same number or fewer new immigrants in the last 10 years as we've been in the last 10? And this is what sociologists call a robust finding. However you ask the question, you find this pattern with age. And, and here's one other kind of evidence for what we're talking about. We asked this kind of fun question. We said, have you ever been involved in a romantic relationship with someone who is not Anglo? And of Anglos under 40, 58, 61% said, thank you for asking. Yes, indeed, I have. Here it is for Anglos 40 to 60. And here it is for us older Anglos. I'm afraid the heart's going to get a little smaller here. A powerful reminder that we older Anglos grew up in a different world. The world of the 1960s and 70s was a different place than the world of the 1990s and 2000s. There's a law of human nature that says what I am familiar with feels right and natural. What I'm unfamiliar with feels unnatural and somehow not quite right. Every question we ask about comfort with diversity, support for immigration, shows this remarkable pattern with age. Not surprising, but a powerful reminder. And, it's, and I remind you, we older Anglos are also changing and growing increasingly comfortable with this diversity. But, but we are falling in love with each other, marrying, making multiracial babies at a rate we've never seen before in human history. Of all the marriages in America involving an Asian in the last three years, across America, 38% involved a non-Asian. Of all the marriages in Houston of US-born Latinos who are married, 28% are married to non-Latinos. We are moving into a transracial world where Ethnicity is becoming less and less relevant, less and less important as a determinant of, of experience. And the fundamental challenge for the future of America is not an ethnic divide, it's a class divide. In every community, a growing middle class and a growing underclass predicated above all else on access to quality education from birth to college, from cradle to career. And it is the central challenge for America and for Houston as we go forward. Okay, so here's Anglos, here is African-Americans. Have you ever been involved in a romantic relationship with someone who's not African-American? We asked them in the same way, the same, and virtually identical picture. It reminds us that we were all caught in it. <coughs> say, say it again. Oh, thank you, thank you. Okay, uh, a reminder, right, that this, this, is, this is, again, part of the story of Houston, part of growing up, and when you grew up, and, and, and it's, it's not that we Anglo, older Anglos can't change, but it's just not as easy to change as, those, as Anglos who grew up in this world. And the fastest growing ethnic community in America are the children of multiracial parents, or the multiracial kids of, of multi, multi, okay. Uh, one final point, I wanna, there's so much more to talk about. One of these surveys has just been very, very interesting, but gay rights. Uh, three questions we've asked over all these years, starting in 1991. One was, do you think marriages, agree or disagree, marriages between homosexuals should be given the same legal status as heterosexual marriages? First asked that question in 1993, 31%, growing consistently to 65% today, saying uh, marriages between homosexuals should be given the same legal status as heterosexual marriages. We said, are you in favor or opposed to homosexuals being legally permitted to adopt children? Only 17% when we first asked that question in 1991, growing to 63% in our most recent survey. And then we said, do you, do, you, uh, do you believe that homosexuality is morally acceptable or is it morally wrong? And the percent saying it's morally acceptable went from 21% to 58 and 56%. Really one of those robust findings, again, a striking consistency. A reminder that we are now increasingly living in a world where not everybody's going to look like me and not everybody's going to have the same proclivities as me. But that's okay. In fact, that enriches my life. 
That's a part of the, why I want to be in a city with the diversity and variety that Houston provides. And, it's, and we're growing acceptance of that. That is a big part of the Houston as we build the Houston of the 21st century. Third theme, very quickly, uh, turning Houston into a destination of choice, right? And here's a reminder of just wonderful things that we've been doing in the last 30 years, 40 years, to, build, to, to address issues that we never paid attention to before. One of the best examples, I think, is the Bayou Greenways Initiative. Here are the bayous. It's called Bayou City, 11 major bayous that all drain into the Gulf of Mexico. Those bayous were concretized in the cheapest possible way by the Army Corps of Engineers to serve as drainage ditches for our flooding problems. That's what we did down here. No one thought of these as amenities of any value. We got a flooding problem. We got these crazy creeks. Let's straighten, straighten them out, concretize them, get the water out of here as fast as possible. In, in the year, in the election of 2012, we, the citizens of the city of Houston, voted to tax ourselves a million dollars. I'm sorry, a hundred million dollars. To be, to be matched by 130 million in private monies to take the nine major bayous in Houston and turn them into linear parks. And as a, as a Bayou Greenways initiative is completed, 150 miles of linear parks along all nine of the major bayous in Houston. Houston is becoming one of the greenest cities in America. That would have been inconceivable 20 years ago. It is a city self-consciously aware that it needs to reinvent itself if it's going to succeed in the 21st century. Here's another piece of its need to reinvent itself. Climate change. Houston is at the forefront of the, of the climate problems. And it's got to be in the forefront if it's going to succeed in the 21st century in, in the solutions. But the general public is there. We asked these questions. We said, how serious a threat is, is climate change or global warming? Would you say it's a very serious problem, somewhat serious, or not much of a problem? The percent saying it's, it's a very serious problem went from 39 to 51% over these surveys. And then even more striking, we said, do you think climate change is mainly caused by human activities for which we are responsible? Or, or is it caused by normal climate cycles? And the percent saying it's caused by human activities and we are gonna to have to change our ways if we're gonna address this problem, went from 48 to 54 to 58 to 61 to 65 to 69% in the survey this year. Just again, a striking, gradual, unmistakable, growing awareness that if Houston's gonna make it, it has to rethink many of its fundamental assumptions that work so well for the city when Houston's location in the East Texas oil fields was the basis for its wealth. And increasingly, that, that our location in the East Texas oil fields will have less and less to do with Houston's success as we go forward. And one final piece I want to point to is Houston is by some measures the most spread out, the least dense, the most automobile dependent city in all of America. Phoenix actually is slightly more even more dependent on, on automobiles than we are. But here is the city, uh, the city of Houston covers 600 square miles uh, and, and contains within it 2.2 million people. 600 square miles. You know how big that is? You could put inside the city limits of Houston, Texas, simultaneously, I kid you not, the cities of Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, and Philadelphia. Those four cities cover the same geographical space as the city of Houston, and they contain among them five and a half million people. City of Houston contains 2.2 million. Then you go out to the greater Houston metropolitan area, the CMSA of Houston, uh, and here are the nine major counties, Harris County in the middle, Fort Bend County, I, I should have mentioned earlier, we think may be the most ethically diverse county on the planet. Fort Bend County today is 22% Asian, 21% Latino, 25% uh, Hispanic, 29% Anglo. You can't get much closer than one, to one-fourth, one-fourth, one-fourth. Really striking. Meanwhile, Montgomery County, still overwhelmingly Anglo County, but it was 85% Anglo in 1990. It's 60% Anglo today. So you're watching a tremendous transformation in this nine-county area that covers a geographical space of 10,000 square miles. Do you know how big 10,000 square miles is? You could put inside the city limits of Houston, of the greater Houston metropolitan area simultaneously, or I'm sorry, here this, this, the state of Massachusetts just slightly larger than the, than the greater Houston metropolitan area and much larger than the state of New Jersey. This is the blob that ate East Texas. Houston was built on a crummy little bayou, 50 miles from any natural barrier in any direction, no mountains, no forests, no rivers, a developer's dream, built by, for, and on behalf of the automobile, made possible by air conditioning, and we spread everywhere. And we've created a civilization totally predicated on the automobile. And we've been asking people, if you could choose how you wanted to live in Houston, what would you prefer? Here's the last set of questions I want to show you. Two sets. One is, 
Uh, what kind of neighborhood would you like to live in? A single family residential area or an area with a mix of developments, including shops, restaurants, and, and homes? And it's a 50-50 split. And then we said, well, what kind of home would you like to live in? A single family home with a big yard where you would need to drive just about everywhere you want to go, which is basically what all of us have, or a smaller, more urbanized home within walking distance of shops and workplaces. And again, a 50-50 split. And it's a reminder that we are a different folk today than we were back in the 1960s and 70s when we all went out to the suburbs with our family, with the average American family had, had, had six, I'm sorry, had, Thank you. You can pay, paying attention. This is great. Uh, and and now, of course, the average the average uh, young people getting married, having children, will have one point six as opposed to three point six. And so we so you uh, and I'm sorry. I'm just trying to think of of how to put all this in a nice clear context. Uh, we're watching the growth. It's now about one fourth of all of all households in Houston today have children living at home. One fourth. Whole bunches of us are empty nesters. The kids have grown up. I'm in my late 30, 40s, early 50s. I work downtown. I love the ballet and the symphony and the opera. Do I still want to have to drive two, two hours every day? Give me a break, Houston. Give me the opportunities to, to live within walking distance of shops and workers. We're trying to attract the millennial generation. The, the sociologists talk about this generation as the postponing generation. They seem to be in no rush to get married, to have babies, to turn us into grandparents. They don't want to be out in, in the boondocks. They want all the variety, walkability, diversity that only urban life can provide. And the fastest growing age segment of the American population, back to what I was saying at the beginning, fastest growing segment are men and women over the age of 70, over the age of 75. And we have not seen anything yet. As the baby boom, 76 million moving rapidly into, into, into that status, move their way along. I'm not sure I want all those 85 year olds driving everywhere. <laughs> so it's a reminder that we, that we are a different folk today and we're called on to reinvent this city and ask what do, how do we build a city that is prepared to succeed and to lead the way in the new realities of the 21st century. So let me just stop there and remind us of a few of the key themes. We're going to need to grow into a much more united, equitable, and inclusive multi-ethnic society, far more than we have today prepared to capitalize fully on its burgeoning diversity. One of my favorite quotes from Anise Parker when she was interviewed after her eight years as mayor was, what struck you the most about Houston that you didn't expect to find? And she said something to the effect, every major language of business spoken anywhere in the world is spoken in Houston by native speakers with global connections. Tremendous asset for Houston as a second largest port in the country, the gateway to the global marketplace, to be a representative, to have a representative sample of the entire world's population. Younger generations of all ethnicities are embracing the growing diversity. I tell people you gotta be gentle with us old Anglos, but we're, doing, we're coming along too. We're finding the challenges a little bit more difficult. It remains to be seen, right? Whether the city can marshal the resources to reduce the deepening inequalities and to build on the attitude changes in a concerted effort to position Houston for sustained prosperity in this new reality, a new time of economic, demographic, and technological transformation. It's really the most interesting and significant city in all of America, I believe. And what we do here in the next period of five to 10 to 15 years can have real significance for what's happening across the country. So pick up a copy of, the, of this report. We have a report every year at, at uh, kinder.rice.edu. There's the book, it's still relevant, but it's three, three surveys ago. But what a fascinating city Houston has become. Thank you all very much. Let me stop there. Open to questions, thoughts, comments. Thank you. No, keep, keep, keep that. Uh, are you willing to uh, take a question or two? Sure. So I noticed that in the poll that you took about um, attitudes about homosexuals that it seemed to go down in the last couple of years. And I was wondering if in your polling you took any, did any questions about religious spiritual preferences over the period yeah, sure. of time. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Uh, yeah, remember when things go up or down, there's a random error because of a, we're, we're talking to a thousand people and we're gonna to claim to be able to tell you how four million people would answer these questions, right? So there's a random error of plus or minus 3%. So a change from one year to the next of four or five percentage points could be just random fluctuation. And the beauty of, the, of, of our survey, and I'm, I'm retiring from Rice at the end of January, 
but the surveys will continue. And it's going to be, it's just a fascinating, because then you can ask, we go back and ask the same question, is it, has it really changed or not? You can see, you can, you can watch it. But, it, but so I don't think there's been an actual drop in support for gay rights okay. at all. Uh, what's the other question? <laughs> Did you do any polling about religious preferences and religious? Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't bring it. I've got it on, on one of my other slides. The, yeah, we ask people every year, of course, are you, are you Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, some other religion or no religion? And, and uh, watching it over, over years, the percentage of Protestants has dropped. The percentage of, of, of uh, Catholics has stayed steady, basically because of being, as older Catholics disappear, younger Catholics come along from, from, from uh, Vietnam and, 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 and Mexico. And, and the percent of people who said no religion has tripled. And it's really striking to see that, that growing secularization. Uh, and, and yet when we ask people, how important is religion in your life? Very important, somewhat important, not very important, no change whatsoever. So what people are talking about is organized religion. What they're talking about is churches to some degree. What they're talking about is programs that, that connect to them. And, 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 and there's real opportunity for churches like, like, like this one to, to reach out to, to groups that don't necessarily think of themselves as Protestants or, or as Methodists, but, but who will respond to, to the opportunities to share insights and, and concerns and experiences. But it's been very interesting to watch. And of course, exactly what's happening in the nation as a whole. One third are now see themselves as, as non-religious compared to 8% when they first began the service. So in, 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 uh, in the press that we're hearing all the time about the div incredible divisiveness that's in our country that's come about the last half dozen years or so, or let's say come to the surface in the last half dozen years or so, does your polling... So we're watching more and more polarization. Harris County is becoming more democratic, slightly, but, but considerably less Republican. And that's the story of Texas, of course, is that the, the, the urban triangle of Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, and Boston, and, and Houston are more and more democratic, and then all, it's a sea of red everywhere else. And, and that's, that's not healthy for, for Texas, and it's not healthy for our democracy. And I'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, you know, as I say, there's just so, there's so much anxiety. These changes are so profound and so powerful. And, and nobody chose to make this happen, but it, somebody must have been responsible and, and, and that fear that, that, that these changes generate. And it's up to the rest of us to say, hey, this is part of what makes Houston and, and, and my life such an interesting time to be here. And there's so many wonderful things that we can do together to, to be a model for what is gonna happen automatically, necessarily, inevitably, a growing multi-ethnic world. Every country imaginable is already, is, its growth is largely non-European. Non and the, the, the destiny of European groups is to be, to, to be a model for, for how a new, a new America, a new world can, can, can form out of, out of uh, this remarkable set of changes. That's a great note to end on. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank, thank you all for being here. Remember this, no matter where you go, no matter what happens, watch your step because you carry precious cargo. I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.